1: Everybody, um, this is IJN UK podcast number 428. I thought we don't name them, uh, number them. Gav says that, but like, you know, oh, is that well, just one of Gav's oh, I'm into taxonomy. Well, he's away as well. Um,
2: when Gav's well, away, it's
1: useful, you probably already know that because you download it and we put it on the metadata for the app. <laughs> um, hello, I'm Daniel Cooper and this is Joe Scrabble Hello, that's me. It's a little two man podcast, yes, yeah, very unusual, isn't it? Uh, just so you know. Full, you know, full disclosure, the reason we're doing this is it's after hours. Um, oh. There is actually a lot of top secret stuff going on this week. I mean, when we say after hours, we should always do this. We've, We've got two Ronies on the go. Ronies um, for days. Yeah, there's lots of very, like, secret trips going on this week. Well, well, there's one not so secret trip. Gal's just on holiday in Hawaii having the best time of his life. Putting it all on Instagram. It's very good. And I mean all. It's very good. You should follow him on, on the socials if you don't massive influx of followers you just got but also um, we've got some secret trips going on this week which we can't talk about for three weeks but when we do as someone who's good. as someone who's not on any of them I you, can tell you I'm jealous <laughs> yeah. it's amazing we've yeah. got some good stuff happening. we've got We're going to go see something amazing this week. Um, But we'll talk about that in probably three weeks' time, I think. Um, But what we're going to be talking about today is we've got a really... So the second half of this podcast, when you get to it, is a really fascinating chat that I recorded earlier today with Andy Nyman and Jeremy Dyson, who are the writers and directors of a new British horror movie called Ghost Stories, which is out on April 6th. And, like, I say this in the interview... And the interview is a little bit embarrassing because it's like when we interviewed Jeff Kaplan, and I become a little bit of a fanboy. So you can all enjoy that. But I really love the horror movie, and it's a really great British horror movie. It's fantastic. To it. So we'll get onto the layer and we'll talk about that a bit in more detail. But that's the second half of this podcast. First, we're going to talk about another movie that is out this week called Ready Player One. What? And this is like. It's a thing that's like dominated a lot of conversations in the office Mm. and on the podcast for like months and months. And a lot of them have been fairly negative or cynical or reserved. As I saw
2: from the IGN UK feedback uh, for one or two weeks, a lot of people disagreed with my opinion. that Ready Player One looked
1: fundamentally embarrassing. also, like, I think we kind of had this um, conversation in the pub, like, after Black Panther. We were, like, having this. And, like, it's one of those things where I think sometimes we have conversations. and You know, you're kind of playing devil's advocate as well. You're taking a stance to press it to the extreme. Mm. And so I've seen it. You haven't. Yes. And I texted you immediately. I went and see it on my day off. And I texted you after. And I just need to say, like... I went on my day off, and I thought, "Oh, I do want to see it just to see what it's all about. Whether our pre some like our assumptions about it were right or wrong." And I wasn't like massively looking forward to it. I went in, I sat down. First ten minutes, I'd, I thought like okay, okay, okay. And then after fifteen minutes, I was like, i was so into it! <laughs> I was having such a brilliant time." Yeah, and this is and what it's I, just great fun.
2: This is what I'm hearing from everyone. And to the gloating listeners, continue gloating. It sounds like I was completely wrong. This is a good Spielberg film. Like yeah. it does,
1: it doesn't indulge in the stuff that I was worried it was going to. And, and like, it's a weird thing. And we've, you know, we're very fortunate. Like, we get to speak to like filmmakers and, you know, marketing, the marketing team almost exclusively handle posters and trailers. And the most distinctive thing about this movie is the fact that it has all this pop culture mm. stuff in it. Like, It's got all this shit in it. And you would emphasise that in trailers because it makes it look different to everything else. And also it's like, oh, you like this thing. You like this thing. That's in this thing.
2: And that's what annoys me about it because it feels like there's no substance, which it sounds like I'm wrong about. Yeah, but
1: then when you got into it, right? Um, When you get into it, that stuff is there, obviously. Of course it's there Hmm. and it's there all the time. But it's like kind of like, Payoff punchline, but most of the time it's kind of background texture mm-hmm. for this like story about someone who's trying to beat a video game, like essentially the- a big video game quest.
2: So it sounds like the good bit of Wreck It Ralph, the yeah. first twenty minutes. Yeah,
1: it is, and then, like I watched the Spielberg documentary, the HBO documentary, when I was flying to Montreal a few weeks ago, and there's a really good line in it because. Spielberg, though, he was never, he went to the same film schools as all the other guys. He's like part of um, Scorsese and De Palma and Lucas, like the brats that changed Hollywood. Mm. And in that documentary, the thing they say about Spielberg, the recurring thing is, even though they maybe made more acclaimed movies, more serious movies, he was the successful one. The thing they say about him was like, the thing you've got to remember about Steven is he's a fucking nerd. Yeah. <laughs> and you watch this movie and he's like, he is a fucking nerd. Yeah. And- there's lots of talk about like how there's never been a great video game adaptation. I think this is one of the movies that really understands why you would like to play a video game mm. and what's cool about video games. And it talks about a lot of video game concepts. It doesn't like uh, like labor them. It just assumes that you might know what they are yes. and talks about it. Like, when you feel the trailer and all these people are dressed up with all this shit and you're like, oh, there's all these characters in it. But when you're in it, you realize that the way the Oasis works is permadeath is a thing. Mm. And all, it's EVE. It's when, EVE Online. When you're playing, you accumulate what they call coin and mm. you can use that to buy upgrades and skins and stuff. So when you see someone in the Oasis that looks like Tracer, they've bought that skin. Yeah. And it's literally what we do. We we hoard money on Overwatch so mm. we can buy cool skins. And that's what the threat is. So when I first saw it, I was like, oh, it's Iron Giant turns up in a weird like intertextual way. No, it's someone in the game saving up to buy Iron Giant.
2: Well, this is an interesting point because, uh, again, one of the fundamental problems with video game movies is that they're going to have to boringly and patronisingly explain what a video game is and what it does. And I think, to be fair, the the section about explaining what an Easter egg is in the trailers is ham-fisted as hell in a way that really irritated me and felt... Ex- exemplified by the rest of the trailer Mm. but you sent me a text and i've read this from multiple people who i think are actual good thinkers um, that the way it introduces actual video game concepts feels satisfying and rewarding i guess yeah. to a so to someone who plays them so you were talking
1: about um you
2: know what now that i think about it i can't
1: remember anything you like, talked about but some there's really loads interesting of, stuff there's loads of things just layered in there like being, pay to win you were like, talking pay about pay to wins in there and like being part of a clan is a thing in there hmm. but none of them might like, dominate as major plot points but they all like fuse together to be part of the narrative
2: and no one's sitting there going we're in a clan we have to name our clan can, and these are like, my friends if, in the like, clan as
1: with things like this, it's really hard to... Let's If you listen to the podcast, so you are like... I assume you're really into video game culture. It's kind of hard when mainstream media tackles this thing. They almost universally shun. Yes. So for the first time hearing... There's a section in it where they, they mention GoldenEye. And like, there's a way that you could find it a bit cringe. Mm. And I felt... When I was listening to it, I felt myself slightly cringing. But I was like, actually, this does sound authentic it just feels weird to have it spoken, let alone spoken in a massive Hollywood movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they talk about having slappers only. And it's like, that's, that's a proper golden yeah, thing. Good. But it's just weird to hear it in a big movie. And the same like someone saying like, oh, I watch her tri- Twitch streams. Like I'm not of the generation that watches loads of Twitch streams, mm. but like I recognize that that is a thing people say. Also, can we just it point just out- It feels weird. In Ready in Player One
2: time, is Twitch going to be around? Could
1: be nice. I mean, they better could be archive, diversify. Could be old stuff.
2: Could be. I watched like, her trips like, Twitch again, streams. The movies, she's they dead talk now. About,
1: um, walkthroughs and like wikis and stuff. Like, there's all this stuff like going around, and there's a big evil corporation that wants to like win the Easter egg hunt, so they can own the Oasis. Mm. And the thing they want to do is like big evil publisher. They want to fill it with full of microtransactions and ad space. Right. So everything gets advertised in the Oasis. Yeah. So there's like this weird net neutrality, like anti-advertising strain in it. But again, it's just there in the background. And if you know what that stuff is, you're like, ah, cool. Have
2: you ever read um, Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson? No. Firstly, Incredible, one of my favourite ever books. Um, and Presage the Matrix in a load of ways. But that has a very similar thing where it's sort of the... It's the point after which uh, virtual reality has been taken over by corporations. And it's fascinating. Like the way that a guy, I think it was 1994, like the way this guy, Neil Stevenson, was talking about Mm. how companies would take over a virtual space is bang on with that kind of stuff. And uh, also, like, mad... I'm I'm going off on a tangent, but he did mad things like he essentially predicted what Google Earth was going to be and stuff like this, like really weird, specific visions of how this all works. But that's what excites me about Ready Player One having you told... having had you tell me about it. This idea that it's not necessarily about the sort of adventure and like the pop cultural elements of it. It's the idea of how do you transplant what we have into a situation
1: two, three steps beyond. Yeah, like the main thing is like um, this Willy Wonka figure has set up this Easter egg hunt within this game he's built and it's on to people to like appreciate and look for clues. And obviously if you are averse in pop culture, particularly of the 80s and 90s when James Halliday grew up, Mm. you'll have an advantage so there's lots of scholars who study study pop culture of that age mm. so it's quite cool there's like scenes in labs where people are like studying x-men comics on big screens <clears throat> like they're weird like egyptian um, fresco isn't the right word for an egyptian but like a weird yeah kind of like hieroglyphics they're like studying them like for wait clues. how far in the future is this meant to be I think it's like 2049 or something it's like blade runner Time. that seems mad why would they be studying them that way no they're studying them because they're looking for clues to solve his oh sorry right sorry like yes because is, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. he's issued this challenge for years this kind of subculture has arisen risen around like well because obviously if you solve the quest you inherit the oasis so trillions of pounds worth of business so people have become pop culture scholars mm. but again a lot of that stuff is incidental to the main narrative which is trying to find three keys to unlock a prize. So I've heard like l- it's very simple in one sense. I've heard lots of stuff about like
2: why it works and what it does well with the sort of pop cultural stuff it's going for. Why is it a good Spielberg movie? Like what's what Spielberg added to that? What's he added to it? Like is it has it got the sort of childish heart of a lot of his stuff it is or childish, is it
1: I think there's a group of five kids who play together. Who are the central? I mean, thing. that's basically Spielberg, Spielberg. isn't it? And yeah, it's the five kids from you know, it's the kids from ET, and they're like the the clan that emerges through the game. They're in a co op session, mm. and they win the challenge together. Spoiler, that doesn't sound. I'm sorry, good. Um, what? Yeah, and it's just got um, it's got just like. I, again, going back to the documentary, like he knows how to visualize a story. There's yeah. amazing stuff when he puts on the VR headset, the camera moves in a way that you then slip into the headset with him. And it's just like orchestrating all those visuals. Because obviously there are sequences where it's just insane the amount of stuff that's on screen. I would say a lot of that all went into the trailers, so it looks constantly hectic. Mm. It isn't always like that. There are busy scenes. But I just think being able to like orchestrate all that stuff also... He's probably the only director who could get away with some of the stuff that movie does because it plays with other directors' stuff. Oh, okay. Yeah, in yeah, yeah. A, In a way that if a lesser director did it, it would seem sacrilegious. Yes. Whereas yeah. Steven Spielberg does it. It's like... Well, who's
2: enough. above who's who's above Spielberg? Because
1: he's like gone into the toy shop and playing with anything he wants. Yeah. And I feel like if you gave that to like a new time director, it'd be like, have you done that? Oh, you were actually friends with him. Did you see fair the fair enough?
2: Did you see the brilliant story about Zach Pen? Huh? Um, so Zach Penn's the guy who wrote the uh, who adapted but, yeah. the screenplay, and he wrote Last Action Hero. And so when he went and saw the movie, there's a bit where Ty Sheridan is it? It's Ty Sheridan, yeah. isn't it? His character's driving down driving down a road, and he passes a cinema, and the cinema's showing um, like Last Action Hero three or something. And Zach Penn didn't know that that was going to be in there, and had sort of said. I don't want to include any of my own stuff in there. And Spielberg had put it in on purpose with, is it Ernest Klein? Yeah. Yeah. Those two had collaborated to be like, let's put in a little surprise for Zach. You're like, that's so lovely. (laughs) What a nice (laughs) thing. I mean, obviously, super high privilege Hollywood version of doing a nice thing for someone, but really cool.
1: Very, very nice. Yeah. And there's like, yeah, I feel like not only does he just obviously. Joe, I'm just going to say it. Spielberg, he's one to watch. What? He's one to watch, like, for the future. I'm not convinced. I'm just going I'm, I'm to give him a little tip for everyone listening. He's one to watch. Yeah, it's it's, it's really good fun. I don't want to, like, big up too much because I think the expectations of that movie are all over the place. But, mm. like, I went in, not expecting much. And, like, people have been a bit down on that. And I just thought it was just a load of fun. And I thought it really got... You get through all the kind of like busy texture of it and like oh there's that thing from that thing it's really fun like escapism
2: i have to say i've not seen anyone... that sounds like a
1: bottle out it's like fun escapism i know that's no, sometimes no, no. a play to like shitty movies to like justify them. i love fun escapism, but like
2: i just really got caught up in it mate i watched game over man and by the
1: is a brilliant villain he's amazing because like, what he's he's a really good spielberg villain because he's like it's weird petty villain yeah, he's not like super maniacal. And Again, stuff. childish. Yeah, he's he loves just, that. Well, it's like, he's a bully. Because like, there's a weird thing with um, Mark Rylance is the guy who invents mm. the Oasis. You like great Shakespearean actor, great theatre actor, is in Dunkirk as well. Simon Pegg is like if if he is Steve Jobs, Simon Pegg is his like was. Oh really? And Ben Mendelssohn like worked with them. So there's this weird flashbacks to like Silicon Valley era. He's those, he's one of
2: those guys who sold all his who didn't uh, who buy, like sold yeah. the shares before yeah. they became big. Yeah, or so there's this
1: weird flashback where um it's kind of like almost like jobs the movie or something, where it's like Silicon Valley and they're developing the Oasis and these cool flashbacks to those moments. Hmm. So all that stuff is never in the trailers because they want to show you like Chun-Li and Tracer and yeah. stuff. There's like cool stuff like that in it as well. That's fun. Anyway.
2: I'm looking forward to seeing it and I'm assuming now that I'm going to like it. But I mm. will let you know if I think it's shite.
1: That's, a, think that's always the thing when you see something early and you're like an advocate for it. I think anyone feels like that. Oh, of course, yeah. Um, but yeah, I had a lot of fun watching it.
2: We're going to do that later on.
1: Uh, here's another movie that we both saw that mm. we really liked. Well, I loved it. I, I, mean, I think it's absolutely fantastic. So, Ghost story. So, in a while, we're going to hand over to me, um, <laughs> speaking to Andy Nyman and Jeremy Dyson in detail about the movie. But we talk about a lot of stuff. We talk about, like, old horror movies and, like, approaches to making movies in Britain today. But we don't actually talk much about what the movie is. So we're mm. going to set it up right now. And it's a movie that is based on a play they wrote a few years ago. It played in Hammersmith and they went to London's West End for a few years. I'm
2: sure you and Gav have talked about it a
1: few times yeah, on the like, podcast. And it, what it is, is it's kind of like a portmanteau horror movie. So that is mini narratives with a framing narrative, bringing them all together. Mm. In the case of ghost stories, it's a paranormal, a paranormal investigator, lecturer, who investigates three mysteries mm-hmm. to prove whether they're real or not. And then he gets, you know, it hands off to these little insects. And he's movies.
2: a committed sceptic, which is point out. He's a committed
1: sceptic. And they've adapted it for film. And, like, these are two guys who've, like, flirted with horror throughout their careers and stuff. Jeremy Dyson with The League of Gentlemen. Andy Nyman worked a lot with Darren Brown, but it's been horror movies and horror TV shows. And well, and Darren Brown's played with the idea of horror in his shows forever. And it just feels like... You know, if you've been, if you've loved the thing for like 40 years of your life and then you get the opportunity to make it, it you just like go nuts. Like you've have all these ideas like been percolating for 40 years and then speaking to them you're about here. Like it's obviously they're just like super happy they got a chance to make it. Yeah. And it is like, it's such an elegant horror movie. I think. And
2: this is the hard thing is it's, it plays with this idea of the anthology series that we've seen so much recently to the point where I don't want to say what any of the stories no, are. No, I don't think so. Like, which is really hard because then you're just going, "Trust us, it's a fun movie with different stories inside." But I, I, I cannot impress upon you enough how a surprising those stories are in taken together because I can say at least yeah, one yeah. of them's fucking horrible. One of them's funny, varied, very, very, and one of them is like confusing and 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 undermining and it has this sense of they're not just playing with you by going oh there's different horror movies in this they're playing with you by going you won't know how to feel from scene to scene because you never know whether whether you're being like, played you're, for a laugh. You don't
1: know what the coordinates are. Yeah,
2: you, it, it, it's like the the film itself is interacting back with you because you're going fuck, and then there's a laugh, and then you're like, oh, I feel a bit more chilled out, and then it's like fuck again, and it's it just constantly unsettles you in a really exciting way. The first story of the three made me feel profoundly that's the one you said, unpleasant. Yeah. Like. That's-
1: that one's, br- like, I think they're all great in different ways. And there's, yeah. like, nice little variations in tone. There's only 3 inset narratives in this one, mm. whereas, like, some of the older horror movies, they try to cram in more. But there's three is nice, and also the framing narrative becomes a bigger thing in the yes. movie. And I think it's just such an elegant movie because there's this really great quote by Stephen King. And I'm not going to paraphrase it badly, but it's something like, there's this division of horror as he sees it. And mm. one is like the best the best effect that you can achieve as a horror writer is terror. Mm. And that is like Anne Radcliffe. It's like fear of the sublime is terror. So if, he's like, if I'm doing my job, if I'm having a great day, I'll terrorize you. <laughs> if I can't terrorize you, I'll horrify you. So I'll show you a spider, yeah. something, something like that will make you feel on edge. If I can't horrify you, I'm not a proud man. I'll gross you out. Yeah, I'll show you something disgusting. And I think this movie has that full range. I think mainly it's in the mode of like terror. So it's the fear of like the spectral. It's the suggested. Uh, I think. I think that's. I, I think that's the overall. Well, I effect. think it's much more like it is ghost. So it is more ghostly than it is like visceral horror. Yes. But then, yeah. No, that's fair. Yeah, and yeah. Then, but then I think sometimes it steps down and goes. We'll show you something freaky. Yeah. And then occasionally it'll go. We're gonna do something bonkers, but then yeah. But that's what I love is I like, love that change of register. It, it it
2: abandons the gross out element. Like there's very little in there where you're like, oh, that's gross. There's a couple of things
1: that are a bit gnarly.
2: What it what it skips like to is lines.
1: you just go, what the
2: fuck is that? And like you laugh because particularly one of the stories is designed to make you go. Are you kidding me? Like what is this? Yeah. And then you get no explanation and that's the yeah. delight of it because you're just sat there going, I don't know what I meant to think this is. It's also Ghost Stories is super satisfying if you love British TV as well. Oh, like yeah. the the kind of key actors in it, Nyman aside who's great but is not he's not known for the same stuff. Yeah. No. But Paul Whitehouse is a major character, Alex Lawther from um, Black Mirror Alex and Lawther, brilliant. I think Alex Lawther is my favourite actor at the moment everything he's in I just go yeah. he's amazing uh, you'll know, probably know him best from End of the Fucking World um, and um, third one Martin Freeman you've got these people who you're not used to seeing in this context yeah. doing some of their best
1: work as far as I'm concerned Martin Freeman's great
2: I think Paul Whitehouse
1: like yeah I, like, it's kind of like a wee revelation seeing him doing something like that we've, we've talked about this before
2: Paul Whitehouse I grew up with going he's one of my favourite comedians he's a he's a funny face to see him scared is almost like seeing a friend or a parent scared it has yeah. this weird effect where you're like it doesn't work to see someone you love for that reason in this role and it has and it's it, kind it of cool pushes trade against that yeah and bit. it just pushes the effect so much further because you're like oh i really don't want paul whitehouse to have a bad
1: time i love him it's really cool it's this weird thing i don't really talk to them about it, but like I'm a League of German fan and have talked about it on the podcast many times. And like there's this weird thing where all these people who kind of knew, know each other, this like little coterie of friends who mm. were like horror nerds when they were growing up. I've obviously got into this position where they can like get stuff made mm. and they're doing it in really interesting ways. Like whether it's like 10 years ago, Mark Gatiss wrote an anthology thing for BBC One, BBC One and BBC Two called Crooked House mm-hmm. and Darren Brown's in that and stuff. And that's an anthology horror movie for TV. You know, Rishi Smith and Steve Pemberton making Inside Number Nine amazing. They're doing this. It's like these little horror nerds get to like make stuff now, and they're all so good at it. Well, they just like really understand and appreciate genre in a really knowledgeable way and a really enthusiastic way. And like as you're about to hear, it just I think it really comes across. Like doing this job for like many years. You speak to people about projects and it's obvious when like a project that's gone on for long, whether they care about it. I've spoken to people who've been on high profile projects, you can tell they do not care about it whatsoever. Yeah. It just it came very obvious and you're built here that they are very proud about what they made and they made a thing on their own terms and a thing they love. And like I just wanna like I hope people go see it because it'd be really cool if they get to make more of these things. Oh mate. I, um, I- I, I'm. If you made one of these, like every like three years for next like ten years, like in the great Amicus tradition or Hammer tradition, where you get different British TV actors to be in it, and, like, I'm not like, cool like, enough trend- to
2: go like, oh, they could be doing so much better. Just keep making this, please. I love it so much. Just this like condensed, self-contained idea of like we're just gonna throw something at you, and that's it, and you get nothing else, and you just go brilliant. It, it, like it works in that... As you said, it comes from a play background. It works like a play. You know that there's nothing to come later. Yeah, There's no franchise being built around it. It's just there. Well,
1: it's just like a, a really good appreciation of genre and like understanding that these are the coordinates of this thing you're going to unfold. And you can just tell the people who made it have like spent a long time appreciating this stuff and suddenly got the opportunity to make a thing and they've absolutely nailed it. So, yeah, you... I'm going to hand over to the interview where, yeah, I'm going to apologize towards the end of it. I get a little bit fanboyish and you can hear me giggle, but yeah, it's very good. You should go see it so they can make more of it. Enjoy. So I saw the play twice. I saw it at Hammersmith and I saw it when it transferred. How did you go from it being a stage play to it becoming a movie?
3: Uh, well, it was a long, it was a long process, um, you know, because when we were when we were first writing it as a play in the first week of of actually sitting down to write it, we we smelt that that it had cinematic potential, mm. but we we were kind of disciplined about saying yeah, yes, but we're doing a play, so you know we parked it, and then. And then there was a gradual creep towards the idea of doing it. And first, there was interest from other parties, which we turned down for various reasons. But we came to the conclusion over time that if if we were going to do it, we wanted to make
0: it ourselves, not just write a script and and hand it over to someone else. And when Jeremy says other parties, I think it is important to state that they were sort of... One was a proper sort of Hollywood offer, and another was was a wonderful... American independent but it was when we dug into what we wanted aside from we felt we'd have more creative control doing it a different way the Britishness of it is what we didn't want to let go of and we felt that that because you know, we both had a memory
3: of we were going to see Hellraiser the weekend it opened, <laughs> and uh, as a young men, and um, also it was the weekend they started Chicken Chicken McNuggets. I remember, well. that, I remember yes. that. but they uh, but being being <laughs> they give them out as freebies. That's why that it was so such well a, the flesh. <laughs> it was it was such a quintessentially British film, and they'd had to compromise by putting American hats on the policemen and having yeah. the policemen speak in American because obviously those then it was a compromise in order to get it financed right. and and it, it seems such a silly trivial thing but it was so important to us to make it as the kind of film the film kind of film that well, we grew more, up with
1: it's more unsettling that it takes place in that suburban house in North London what yeah. Hellraise yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, what are the challenges of taking it from the stage to the screen because obviously this is like a portmanteau horror movie, you know, it's three individual stories with a framing narrative and on stage, the framing narrative is more distinct. Whereas here you become, you play the lead character and yeah. you become much more embroiled in the individual stories.
0: Well, it was really interesting because it's a really difficult thing. Unpicking um, I'm, I'm it and putting it back together again. And I remember we'd had quite a few conversations about it, Jeremy and I, and he was, he was, talking about I remember really clearly you telling me about um, something you'd read with Milos Forman and, and Peter Peter, Shaffer. Peter Schaffer when they were doing Amadeus and Forman saying to him you have to start again you have to start again you know just thinking why this thing is perfect why would you start again not us about ghost stories you know but it's so true because in some respects we really had to unpick it and pull it apart because the play was it's so deeply theatrical and that was one of the, that was one of the exciting things I think for us and for an audience was that you were seeing things you would only really see in a horror film, but on stage, um, with with deeply theatrical, old fashioned sort of theatrical techniques. Well, you couldn't replicate. And also, the thing is based around a lecture on the stage where you, as an audience, are involved in the moment in that lecture. Well, you can't replicate that on on film, and it took us. a right until almost the end of the edit to throw away that device. Cause there was still more of that. Yeah, it was a
3: discovery, film. you know, the film has a different center to the, to the stage play, but it was, <clears throat> it wasn't contrived. We, we had to find what that shift was by doing it. You know, uh, obviously there was some obvious mechanical stuff that you have to do. Um, not, you know, as Andy's already said with the framing narrative, but you know, also with how you're going to stage it and, uh, so I guess we focused on the practical tasks and then, you know, that more esoteric one of,
1: well, what is it, was found in the doing of it, yeah. Um, this is the first, like, horror movie directed. Hmm. But throughout your careers, it's obvious that you have a debt to the horror genre and have played with it in various ways. Because of this opportunity, was it a great, like... Opportunity to do all the things that you've wanted to do that you've admired that you've studied and kind of collected and go oh this is the opportunity to like bring it together and I'd I'd say for me I mean I don't know about
3: Andy but for me absolutely that you know it was that was the that was the most thrilling and exciting thing it was like you've been working all your life for this (laughs) for this moment funnily enough I picked one of the first sort of things I wrote was a book called Bright Darkness which is um, an appreciation of uh, supernatural horror films and you know, that came out 20 years ago. And I picked it up not so long ago because someone was inquiring about republishing it. And although there was much that I uh, was ashamed of in it because it was a (laughs) pompous young man's book, uh, what was interesting was there was an element of it that was like a manifesto for, you know, for this job of... Because all the things that I'd loved in other films... We'd, this is the haunting, yeah, yeah, and, and, and all Dead those, of the, Night, and yeah, those Val Luton films from the Faunters, Cat People, and I Walk with a Zombie, and you know, and, all, and the other British films from uh, from the sixties and seventies, the Amicus films, uh, in particular. You know, they they all found their way into 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 ghost stories, and it was an absolute celebration of for me that love of it. But it was also it was a oh, shared life,
0: identical. Yeah. I mean, we we've been friends since we were fifteen. And part of our shared experience and friendship has been horror, horror films. You know, my first, our first proper weekend together after we met at summer camp was going and renting um, uh, the Exterminator and the Beyond. You know, and uh, we and, and phoning each other when Starbuster come out. And go, oh my god! If you're Alan, Alan Jones, uh, listen what's happened? You know, I mean that's. Our excitement of that. So when the, when we wrote the play... I'm still waiting for the 3D little shop of horrors. <laughs> <laughs> was, we should ask him when yeah. we see him. When we wrote the play, we literally wrote the play that we would want to see when we were 15 slash now, which is ident- we're virtually identical, aside from the fact <laughs> we've both got families now. Other than that, it's the same. Um, and that was the same with the film. Because sort of therein lies madness otherwise, trying to... We, we, what we knew we didn't want to do was make something that felt generic or, or felt like... Or felt compromised. Felt or compromised felt like, or a know, product, yeah, you oh, know. Yeah, you, no. Because there's plenty of that, and that you understand why, because if people are spending X million dollars, they want to try and ensure that it will appeal to as many people as possible. So, of course, that's going to be the case. But where we were blessed with fantastic... Collaborators in Warp Films and Lionsgate, um, Screen Yorkshire, and I mean, I mean, it's honestly been amazing. Um,
3: yeah, we have, we, we've been very well supported by you know all those people. Just wanted to
0: enable us to make this to make film. what we wanted yeah. to make, and, and so literally we wrote the film that we would want to see, and so that means that you're not re- that that means you're on a knife edge as well, of course, because a lot of it may not work for people. Because a lot of it is out there, but then, but then they're also the things when we talk about films we love. They're the things we love, the things where you feel like you're seeing someone's personality. You're getting a, you're getting an inkling into who they are, as well as the ride that you're on. So, yeah, it's it's been wonderful to do.
1: Can you talk a little bit more about the format? Because you picked the Portmanteau, which is an anthology movie. An anthology kind of series are coming back a little bit now. Like they've recommissioned Twilight Zone, Black mm. Mirror. But you don't see the anthology movie maybe as much as you did why did you pick that format was it so you could try your hand at lots of different type of
3: no it was a very natural thing i mean there's a you know there's there's a romance to it and i i as you've already mentioned i've you know elsewhere with the league of gentlemen we were a bit obsessed with it as a form too <laughs> and in fact the very first thing we did as the league before anything was a self-produced Anthology uh, film called Highgate House of Horror. Um, I've never seen that, that we shot. It's, on, it's an extra on the DVD of uh, the Christmas Special, uh, which
1: is itself,
3: a or at least there's an Easter egg yeah. of it if if you have to dig for it. But it is wow. it is in there, and so I, you know there is there is something in the form that is peculiarly uh, you know a peculiar obsession for me, and, and not just for me, but for, it was for Mark Stephen Rees as well. So and I, th- I think there's a there's a real there's a real charm to it there's something of the campfire mm. of it of you know there's something very very primal about it being told a series of scary stories that's just very very appealing if you like this kind of material you know this it's <laughs> not just us that likes anthology films mm. you know you know that the, we know from the response to this that there's yeah a, there's a there's a sizable
0: constituency out there and the ha- i mean i think there's two sort of factions really for it the first is British gentlemen of a certain age <laughs> <laughs> of which we are who grow up with amicus and because they were always
1: our house yeah. of horror yeah. and you know you had this it was part of our DNA but then I have to find the DVDs on eBay that's uh, the difference. Like, they're not always on. Like, you know, growing up, I, wanted, uh, yeah. I had to, like, seek them out. Yeah. yeah well, for us, they were. They were,
3: yeah. you know, they were staples of yeah. the late-night horror double bills, yeah.
0: And some of those images from those films, you know, because they were in, like, the Alan Frank book of horror and stuff, you know, still... I, I still find scary. You know, the skeleton in the... Uh, in the... In, in the... the uh, crash uh, helmet, helmet and stuff. I mean, there's,
3: and, one of the reasons is... You know, there's two things. It's Dead of Night as being the original, original one and, and the Amicus films. And the reason... I think that both of them are so influential, not just for us, but for other people, is that they both are really well-made by intelligent lovers of the genre. You know, Dead of Night had the four best Ealing directors on it who all went on to have stellar careers, Charles Crichton, Basil and Cavalcanti and um, Robert Hamer. You know, Hamer made Hearts and Coronets and they all made brilliant films. So they were fantastic filmmakers. They had terrific writers. You know, the people that wrote the script, wrote all those Ealing comedies, they were first class writers. Um, they had brilliant behind camera people. That did, uh, the DP on Dead at Night was Douglas Slocum, who shot Raiders of Lost Ark. You know, he was, they, these were absolute world class filmmakers, and so that is unusual to have people at that level working on genre material. And weirdly, Amicus, although that they were, uh, they're seen as a kind of exploitative outfit. Actually, they had a similar approach. They, they were very. Um, uh, Max Rosenberg was a very very smart producer and uh, so he knew that he could get people like Freddie Francis who was again a world-class cinematographer Amazing. by saying "Do you want to direct this because he knew he wanted to direct and um, and likewise they were smart of promoting talent so Kevin Connor did from Beyond the Grave for example which was the last of the Amicus anthologies you know was a fantastic director he was real real visual stylist and that's there absolutely throughout. So they, they looked great, they weren't cheap. And they were cheap to make, but they did not look cheap. They were they're not schlocky. Sh- they're, they're in a really yeah. weird world. And they had A-list films. casts, you yeah. know, that other brilliant amicus um, innovation of, well, look, we, go, we only have to pay him for five days yeah. and we can put him <laughs> on the poster. You can be
1: the trip keep You know, so you have yeah. Ralph
3: Richardson yeah. in a horror movie, you know, yeah. <laughs> which is very unusual. night nice of their own. So that's, yeah, what, yeah. that's a big part of their appeal is just that. They were very well made by by very clever people. And they delivered
0: That's another really key part. They delivered both as sort of soft horror and as pure entertainment. They're real crowd pleasers at a time when that's what we did in the British film industry. Yes, you know, we, that's a big deal. You know, we made
3: films that people that stopped after night after sort of seventy eight seventy nine. That just went that that spirit of of, of making commercial British films. It, it, it all flipped over into subsidised filmmaking into art house filmmaking for because it suddenly was the funding model was different. It came from film film four and BBC films, and so it was a completely different model making completely different films. But this was the last
0: gasp of that. Mm. So. And then, you know, the the other ones that really affected us when we were growing up, you know, Twilight Zone, the movie, has got some absolutely sensational, sensational stuff in it. Again, brilliant, brilliant directors. And Creepshow, of course, which is great fun. But other than that, I mean, it's... You know, I'm saying that like they're recent. That's probably, you know, I can't remember what's Creepshow. I mean, they've got to be nearly 30 years old, yeah. haven't they? And... Um, I mean, there have been examples, but none as good well, as the recent. A and, and, VHS yeah, and ABCs a, are there. Where yeah. there's a weird thing with them, and I think ABCs ABC, is the one yeah. that's the closest of working, is that there's a, there's a gimmick that really helps it. And the a- ABCs is great because they're all, you know, three minutes long, maybe six at the longest. And there's a, there is something interesting about using the a to z thing it's a great hook the others for me they don't quite work in the same way because it just becomes a way of you just feel actually all they're doing is stringing together short films whereas those early you know particularly dead of night it's that the protagonist story is the scariest is the one that that and you realize all those other stories are there for a reason it's not mm-hmm. an accident and it's not just a gimmick you know
3: um, so, there's a whole, there's a Scheherazade okay. nature to the, thought, the to the form, which is, you know, hugely appealing and sophisticated and it's very clever as Dead of Night. And mm-hmm. uh, so, yeah, you get that, you get the thrill of being told the individual stories, but then you get the, the, the thrill of the part being more
1: than the whole. Um, in the Amicus ones. The whole being more than the part, sorry. I watched, rewatched watched some of the Amicus ones at the mm-hmm. weekend, and, you know, some of them were adapted from a lot of Robert Block stories yeah. and some DC comics. And there is still that kind of, like, slightly moral fable of, like, something. Horrible God happens to something moral. terrible. Oh yeah, that's, that's something horrible. We love. Something horrible happens yeah. to something terrible. And yeah. some of them are really gruesome yeah. as well. Like they kinda of ramp it up in Tales of the Crip, you know, mm. with the heart wrapped oh, up. In the leather. It's wicked. Like what kind of depiction like this seems much more kind of spectral as a movie than well this is gruesome. closer to dead of night yeah, yeah. so is that yes. like a very intentional decision that even though maybe the portmanteau oh. people associate with amicus this is very much more that kind of ethereal what did I see in the corner of the frame look again or what was well this was that?
3: born don't forget you know and the, the stage show was born out of Andy ringing me saying he'd had this idea for a play with three men sat on stools telling ghost stories and it, I think it was the ghost stories element yes. that completely hooked me in because I have a passion for for ghost stories and and Dead of Night, you know, in Michael Balkan in his, in his autobiography the Iranian studio said, you know, their, their conception for it was a, a series of ghost stories so uh, so i think that element the supernatural element rather than the kind of the visceral you know sort of violent horror element that's present in some of the amicus films
0: is definitely most hugely because we also you know we we talk a lot about we think we really it's a golden age of horror that we're in and has been for for quite some time now you know there's there's not a year goes by that you don't that another great horror film doesn't come out that you think, oh, that was terrific, you know, that really delivered. But one of the things that's the hardest thing to achieve, and I say that as someone we we adore the genre, and I've you know I've got a fright fest every year, and I've done for sixteen years or however long it is now. And the thing that I really chase each year, and that is harder and harder to find, are the things that scare you not the things that gross you out or the things that make you jump because God knows they're still reasonably hard to do and be inventive with but those moments that make you go cold that make you think fuck oh my God you know and you don't want to look or you can't or the temptation to leave the light on at night because Mm of they're rare they're rare to find and they tend to really only live in the world of the supernatural the world of the ghosts when you feel like you're you know, your world is slightly through the looking glass.
1: I think it's like my favourite scare in the movie is the one in the Careful. Paul
0: House. No I'm, not, I'm not going to go into
1: specifics, but it's in the Paul Whitehouse section where you think you see a thing and then it cuts away, cuts back, and it maybe resolves into something else. And then you start to question yourself. So I've seen it twice now. And it's like, you know, it's a recurring line in the film. Mm, the brain sees mm, what it wants mm, to see. And you're yes. like, have I misinterpreted that sensory information? Mm or was it something else? And I think you play with that really well throughout the movie. Thank you. And is that kind of a weird, like, drawing a connection? Does that, in a strange way, tap into kind of your magic background? Oh, completely. Where like, you're playing with people's perceptions, yeah. you're suppressing the rational explanation, so you create this effect of the supernatural. In a- yeah. Well, we both love conjuring.
0: That's the. I mean, that is the other thing, really. I mean, it was hor- horror films, horror films, dirty jokes, and conjuring. I mean that. I mean that's it, basically. That's it. that's all we've got. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and magic's a really amazing thing in the way the brain processes. Yeah, and it's conjuring. fascinating. Yeah. And there's a real overlap
3: as well because that's the other thing is, is neither of us are believers in at least the literal supernatural, as in ghosts and what have you. However, we're fascinated by, you know, there's a real overlap between the phenomena and the world of conjuring because it <laughs> is about. You know, it exists in the in the in the penumbra where of uh, the flaws of perception. Yeah. You know, because perception is the truth about perception. Is is, is we think everything's very solid and we, we've got a very clear idea of what's going on, but it's the complete opposite. It's a sketch that the brain fills in. And you know, anyone who, who works in uh, uh, professionally in in conjuring and magic, stage magic, knows that because you know how how quite fundamentally how easy it is to fool people. And, uh, and it's, it's a
0: bit like, it's slightly dangerous knowledge in a way, really. Well, it is because it does make you look at, <clears throat> just makes you question so much. And it makes, you know, when people, especially when people are telling you their experiences and you just know you're not even getting half the story. You're, getting half, you're not even getting half and half the story. I mean, you're getting what they perceive, you know, literally the brain sees what it wants to see. That's what you've decided that experience was. That's what you've decided that information means. Ergo, that's real. And it's just not true. You know, what's amazing is when that bleeds over into the real world, when we look at things, when we look at how we are manipulated in the, you know, and I'm not being all conspiracy theorist at all, but you look at how it's easy to, easier than ever with social media to shift, seismically properly shift how, nations can vote, how nations can move by targeting individuals and changing what their perception of the world is and telling them what they want to hear and making them believe what they want to fundamentally believe. That goes back to fairground fortune tellers. You know, the golden rule of a fairground fortune teller, the saying is, tell the lady what she wants to hear. You know, and it's amazing because then people are susceptible to anything. But then bringing that back to the film and what we, you know, and our love of magic within that, you know, we it's pretty much everything is practical effects within the film. And um, so any CG and stuff that's used are used to sort of help little bits of removals or augment and stuff here. But that was one of the great joys as well, is you'll see things in the film that are fundamentally magic tricks that you're looking at stuff for quite some time that you perceive as one thing that is not that and then it's revealed to you that it's, you know and that's a really Yeah, it's exciting exciting thing to do because it also what we used to say to each other it's like it's Buster Keaton filmmaking I mean it's it's so old-fashioned but it's so exciting to play with those
3: things Yeah, we get a we just get a buzz out of it because it's entertaining and you know there's a fundamental thing of we just want to give the audience a really good night out you know, that's that's
1: a really satisfying yeah. thing to do or um, to try to do. The final question is obviously that like, you love this stuff and you've really enjoyed making this movie and you're very proud of it and it is like excellent. I've seen it twice. Like would you want to do more of these? Oh of course, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> is, are there any plans? As long, I mean, as long as I'm not working with him, I'm happy. Because you have like very varied careers and you do <laughs> like individually you do some, joke, so, so much it? stuff. Like yes. is this like something you would kind of see us oh I'd happily spend the rest of our days doing
3: this (laughs) yeah it's just the you you know it's the most indescribable fun (laughs) I mean we've been having we can't believe that we've been having this much fun with it for eight years now
0: and uh, you know and literally walking in here seeing these posters seeing all the posters on the buses and stuff it's like I'm You can't believe it. Mm. You can't believe it. And it won't matter if we've made, if we go on to make 10 films, we will always feel the same because it's just, it's incredible. How lucky are we that we've got to do this? And this thing that made us friends, that our bookshelves are full (laughs) of, you know, the idea that, you know, that I know that there is a book on ghost stories coming out later in the year that we are featured in. Fucking hell that's amazing it's true because we're still that 15 we're still old. that thing yeah you know,
3: so, you know I mean just uh, even just getting a review in Starburst was a,
0: <laughs> <laughs> was a thing where we texted each other and yeah each other but it should be like that because what goes hand in hand with that joy is also a feeling of massive responsibility that goes to you want to serve the thing that you love on every single level, and also you owe it to the people that are going to spend anywhere between five and eighteen quid going to the pictures, hopefully to see it. You want them to go out and feel like
1: that was great. Well, I think you did it, like oh. genuinely. As someone who, who you- this falls in like my Van diagram of interest, like, then the movie's incredible. So. Thank, thank you very well thank thank much. much. Thank cool, you. thank you for coming in. Oh, Great. lovely.
2: Well, I for one thought that was lovely and I wasn't even in the bloody room or have heard the recording, but I heard that. But it was
1: nice. Afterwards. It's like um, me awkwardly ending it.
2: I heard that you asked for something to be signed and they said they had a poster in their car.
1: It did, like, I've done this job like for seven years. I think I've asked for like two things signed before because like, I never do a selfie and like the, se- the signing thing's weird because it's like... They're working, but I just thought, oh, why not? And I got them to sign a copy of The Pan Book of Horror. Oh, that's Which is sick. like an old anthology and quite an influential anthology of horror books. And I, when I was like a teenager, I bought like an input, incomplete collection off eBay. <laughs> and I have like the, f- the first issue, the first collection in my house. So I brought that in for them to sign. And they thought I was very nice. You're a cool guy. Yeah, they're lovely. Like, I mean, that.
2: That sounded sarcastic. You are a cool it's guy. It's just like,
1: I, as it probably came across, Like I'm just like, I've been so into their stuff for so many years. Mm. and like, It's just cool that they've been given the opportunity to make the film version of the thing they like mm. when so many people get to make big-budget horror movies that are shite.
3: <laughs> people like, people <laughs> who actually
1: know what they're doing got the opportunity, so that's wicked. Good on them. Uh, time for a little bit of feedback. Quick little bit of feedback. Do you want to go first? Yeah, I, I'll go, go first. first. So last week we were
2: talking about, well, amongst many things, we, we accidentally suggested about three different like responses for feedback but one of them was your proudest gaming moments to right. do with yeah. online gaming it's and being sort of weeks now yeah oh no no
1: we did this last week as well maybe we've Ooh, it's pre-date yeah oh, we loads. About, like, what game you so good at that you like make it unenjoyable for mate else. it all works together so this is from jack
2: gox pierce i don't know what gox is or maybe it's gox like goku i don't know we should have uh, rory here But we don't. Hello, guys. I wanted to share one of my proudest moments in video gaming gaming with you. Me and my friends used to spend a lot of time hanging out in my friend's car in a car park, as all teenagers did. What? Not sure. Did, uh, oh, did, when no one had their own house or flat yet. Uh, Actually, now that you say that, it rings a bell. How the car. Uh, My friend had a big big Jeep and we, um, uh, I once sat in the back of it and ate an entire rotisserie chicken by myself, which would explain a lot of things about me and my size. Uh, We would spend countless hours every day taking turns playing Peggle against each other. Sure. Peggle would appear to be a random luck-based game. This is not the case when you're talking Peggle master level. We could call any shot and hit it like the masters we were. And we did this for at least two years, maybe more. When it finally came to Xbox, and thus meaning it would be online, me and my friend thought to ourselves, hey, we must be pretty good at this. Let's see how good we are. (laughs) So, on day one of release, on the hour, we booted the game up and breezed through the campaign to limber up. We clocked it with the number one rank worldwide for the campaign. This got us buzzed. (laughs) So we hit up competitive and absolutely dominated. We played for the entire day and night and never lost a match, holding the number one rank in the world on 1v1 and party mode. Even holding some of the highest scores on individual levels of the campaign just from our first playthrough.
1: I thought it was just kids sitting in a car.
2: They're absolute whiz kids sitting in their car. Uh, Where was I up to? Needless to say, me and my friend were extremely proud and happy with ourselves. What an amazing feeling it was to think, I reckon we're pretty good at this. To then see that we actually were. (laughs) I'm sure since then our scores have been eclipsed by far more dedicated hard, hardcore score chasers but for that moment we were kings and I'll never forget
1: that that's a weird thing isn't it like to think you might be good at something and then later in life just try and go oh yeah I am Neymar has, has so, that I, ever happened to you no obviously not look definitely at definitely not happened Stay to me <laughs> just had three mini pork pies um, mate you eating eaten the last yeah I oh, wait, I've got yeah, one, one more, more in there. that's a good email I've really enjoyed that gox or gox jack Whoever the hell you are, uh, this next email is from Tom Ranking, who is from Manchester.
2: I like Manchester. It's a, it's a great city. I watched Gravity there in three D.
1: Is that why you like Manchester? It's the
2: only thing I've ever done in Manchester.
1: That's why I like it. Good. <laughs> uh, listening to last week's podcast caused me to get a bit giddy. Oh, I used to play SoCOM. That's a series you don't hear much
2: about. Uh, We were talking about it because my brother became unfathomably good at it when we were kids.
1: Disgusting. Socom 1, 2, and 3. And they were the first games I remember playing online with that shocking extension on the back of your PS2. Oh, it's so beautiful. I was, look at this, just (laughs) a little aside here. I was also in the top 50 on Project Gotham Racing 4. Oh, I thought you were saying you were. No, smashed it absolutely, he smashed, absolutely it. smashed it tom uh star game project gotham or did they do a different racing game they did one of them i think they did yeah i think it was project gotham uh apart from having some awesome i'm sure if we uh, i'm sure if it's not people will write in about, i'm sure i could literally look on wikipedia now not gonna write in we're not gonna do that like a lot of your other podcasts you might listen to apart from having some awesome memories of playing games growing up he's now 24 uh, no, 27, sorry. What are your worst memories? Mine is having Ali McCoist as a FIFA commentator for far too many years <laughs> and getting blisters playing the Olympic Games.
2: Oh, that was bad, the blisters. I got that on Mario Party.
1: Um, well, do, well, I never got blisters. Did you ever use the Tamagotchi technique? As in, like, getting your palm on it and then... Are you literally a Tamagotchi? Just oh, like, no. To rub the buttons. Because oh. Tamagotchi, the weird, like, gradient on the curve of Tamagotchi, you could, like, you cycle it up between on, like tracks on a circle. Konami track and field. Yeah. That's good. Um, I went through two Tamagotchis like that. Yeah, I could
2: see that. Dead, pooping themselves um, as you did it.
1: Worst gaming memories. I think um, it's not specifically about the gaming
2: itself. The thing that always springs to mind when I think about the horror of um, being a child was that my dad once bought me Duke Nukem 3D for PS1. And it was for my birthday and he was going to give it to me. I saw it. I saw the case. I knew what it was. I was really excited, even though that was quite an old game for PS1, I think. But I knew but what that game like, was and it
1: was exciting. reputation is why you wanted
2: it. Yeah. And then as he passed it to me, he saw the 18th certificate, took it away, put no, it in a cupboard. I thought you said he knew what it was. Put in a cupboard, didn't give it to me for years, like found it by accident.
1: Once that, like, we were well into PS2. Mate. I was running around that strip club when I was, Mate. like, 11 on on PC. Like, using the toilets? I've never even been to a strip club.
2: No, that's as close as I've ever gone. I don't know I've if they're gone. full of aliens or not. They could be. And it in the air be. ducts, there's, like, women in weird vats. <laughs> <Is> <laughs> I that hated that. Yeah, in in Duke Nukem, there was a really unpleasant thing that, like, one of the collectibles was there was, like, women in vats, hidden...
1: It was unpleasant. um
2: it's not game. very nice.
1: No, I think we can all realise that. Good
2: game, though. Like, as in, literally, the game is good. Have you seen um, <laughs> Ion Maiden? So it's the people who made that using the original engine
1: build, making a new game. It looks fucking wicked. <laughs> like, really good. Um, I was really racking my brain's worst gaming memories. My worst gaming memory isn't to do with the game per se or in a game. I remember when my Xbox 360 got um, the Red Ring of Death. Yep, that's bad. That's bad. But I remember I was midway through Bioshock at the time. Ooh. And then I took um, a bit of bit of regional flavor for you. <clears throat> I took it um, to the game station in Preston. Oh, yes, please. Because it's fine, because obviously Red Ring of Death was a known thing, mm. a known malady at the time. I took it in Game Station, boom, boom, new Xbox 360. Get that home. Red Ring of Death. Finished Bioshock. <gasps> get home. You left the disc in the other one. Disc is in the Xbox 360. Mm, that's disgusting. And it had already got sent back.
2: Oh, mate, that's no good. How much did you spend on that? I bet it was full I price. I don't know. Unbelievable.
1: So that's my worst gaming memory. I
2: Actually, think. I've got another one. Um, we had um, every year my friend had like the same birthday. It became like a weird tradition amongst me and my well, friends. We always had the same birthday. No, but as in like you did the same thing every year. We went to his house. We played games for this long. We had dinner. Then we played hide and seek in his garden. It was really good. <laughs> we were quite young. Um, <laughs> it was brilliant. And one t- and we would always bring games round to play games with and everyone being like crash team racing yeah. or, you know, like party games. And for some reason, being the fucking hipster that I am, I brought around Animal Crossing on the GameCube, being like, guys, you guys <laughs> check 20, this out. Like, this game's amazing. Because he was. And I brought it around. They were all like, what is this kid's game? Like, ribbed me until I cried and left. It's <laughs> just like, absolutely not. I'm not having this anymore. That's this horrible... is
1: disgusting. Yeah, How so... dare you dislike Animal Crossing? So thank you for your email, Tom. I would like to put our new call for feedback. With a slight different emphasis. What are your worst memories that feature video games in some kind of tangential that's way? That's a good way to do it. I
2: thought you were going to say, What are your worst memories?
1: No, that's too big a job for a, a humble video games podcast like us. <laughs> but what are your, basically, just what are some really shitty things that happened to you were video that games? Yeah, that's a really good um, question. Um, we just, Joe just told you one. He went to a party and cried and went home. Yeah, I did. Um,
2: Luckily, GameCube had the little handle on it, so no one could stop me. <laughs> Unplugged it, <laughs> took it away. He's walking home with his little silver
1: GameCube. <laughs> what color GameCube? What silver? I had the silver one Got it one with well. Wind Waker. Me too. Oh, oh good times. Oh. Good right. memory now. Thank you for joining us. This was the IGN UK podcast.
2: And you can email us on IGN underscore UK feedback at IGN.com.
1: Anytime you want, because... None That's how got, email works. None of us got notifications set for that, so you bother us whenever you like. Yeah, boy. And uh, we'll see you next week.
2: Oh, 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 oh. One sec. We should thank Zach and Trista. Oh, we should. Who got in touch and we met them and they were fantastic. And they probably stopped listening because we really got right to the end. But
1: if you're listening, it's a nice little Easter egg, much like the film Ready Player One. <laughs> <laughs> nah. All right, we better That's go. That's better than Ready Player One. <laughs>
2: Well, they were lovely, and so were you. Good night.